Please stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of God. We have been on a quest for the meaning of our lives. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we've been following around a sage. And he's been taking us down a lot of paths to try to find some kind of stable meaning or some kind of stable happiness in our crazy lives. So far... We have found a lot of dead ends. We've walked down the path of pleasure and self-indulgence. We've gone down the path of career ambition. We've even gone down the intellectual path to try to find human wisdom. And at the end of each path, we keep finding smoke, illusion, frustration, Disappointment. So, so far, this book has helped us identify a lot of paths that will not provide stable meaning or stable joy or purpose in our lives. But the text we are reading today is a new milestone. This is not another path on which to try to achieve some kind of meaning for ourselves through effort or our wisdom or our intelligence. Rather, the sage is taking us to the center and the source of reality. The sage is leading us to something solid, something true. The sage is taking us to the place where meaning and joy are not achieved, but where they can be discovered and received. The sage is taking us to the source of all existence. He's taking us to the fountain of all goodness. The sage is leading us to the presence of God. And the first thing that the sage wants to say to us is, as we approach the presence of God, tread carefully. When you come to God, be serious. 
Be sober-minded. Be respectful because you're treading on holy ground. Look at the first sentence of verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. Be careful. Be thoughtful. Be respectful. Guard your steps when you're going to the house of God. Now, for the original readers of this book of Ecclesiastes, when they hear the house of God, they're going to think about the temple. That's what the sage was talking about. And God had ordained that the temple in Jerusalem was going to be the center of the spiritual lives of his people, the people of Israel. This was the place where heaven and earth intersect. It's a place where sinners would go to find forgiveness and peace with the holy God, where they would go to receive instruction from God's word. And the sage wants them to go there, but he's saying, don't be flippant. Don't be casual. Be reverent, be serious as you come into the presence of God. Now, when Jesus came to the earth, he said some interesting things about the temple. First of all, in John chapter two, he said that his body now was the temple. The the person of Jesus became the place where heaven and earth intersect. Jesus, the body of Christ, becomes the place where sinners can come to find forgiveness and find peace with the holy God. And after his death for our sins and his resurrection, Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on everybody who believes in him. And then the New Testament says that we, the people of God, everyone who trusts in Jesus, now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So for us today, Jesus has taught us, you don't have to go to any particular physical location on planet Earth to find God's presence. Wherever you go, you can experience the presence of the Holy God with you. So if we're going to paraphrase the first sentence of this text for us today, what we might say is be serious and sober minded about your relationship with God. Don't be flippant or casual about spirituality. Take this very, very seriously. Because we're coming to holy ground And we're coming to the most serious thing we could ever talk about. I mean, think about the themes that Ecclesiastes has talked about in the first four chapters. Life and death. Pleasure and misery. Wisdom and folly. Work and laziness. Justice and oppression. Memory and forgetfulness. Time and eternity. He's been dealing with some important, heady stuff, but now he's... Saying, I'm going to take you to the center. But before, it's like we were skimming the surface of reality. But now we're going deep. So be serious. Be reverent. The text ends by echoing it. Look at the last phrase of verse 7. God is the one you must fear. God is the one you must fear. So the theme here is a major biblical theme. It's the theme of the fear of the Lord. So everybody say, fear God. Fear God. The text is teaching us to fear the Lord. Now, that might cause some confusion for us or might cause us to raise some questions. Because the Bible talks a lot about loving God. It talks a lot about trusting God and trusting God's love for us. Talks a lot about faith. He talks about hoping in God. Talks about God's forgiveness. 
So what does it mean to fear the Lord? Now, if we want to start thinking more deeply about this idea, it's helpful to make a distinction between two kinds of fear. When Christians have written on the theme of the fear of the Lord in the Bible, they talk about distinguishing these two kinds of fear. So I'm going to tell them to you. We're going to learn some theological words today. Everybody ready? Yes, sir. First one is servile fear. Everybody say servile fear. Servile fear. And the second one is filial fear. Everybody say filial fear. Filial fear. Now, those may not be words that you use very commonly in your everyday life. Servile is a word that means slavish. Servile fear is the kind of fear that you have if you're a slave and you're scared of your master. You don't want to be punished. Filial fear is something very different. The word filial is an adjective that has to do with the noun son. That means sonish fear. The kind of fear that a beloved child would have for a loved and trusted and respected parent. I want to talk about what those two might mean. Servile fear, slavish fear, the fear of punishment. What, what could that look like if we had servile fear in our relationship with God? Well, it could look like this. You do something and you know it's wrong. You steal something. Or you're dishonest. or you, In an argument, you spout off and say something to somebody that you love, but you know what you said was hateful and disrespectful. You know it's wrong. And then a little while later, the voice of your conscience begins to nag at you. And you begin to feel bothered by it and maybe a little afraid. And it's not just, I might get caught. Maybe you know I'm not going to get caught. Some of y'all know what I mean. You stole something and you know you're not going to get caught. But then there's that feeling inside of you. What I did was wrong. And, and there's a feeling of accountability. Maybe there's going to be consequences for my decision. You might call it karma. Or you, like, I've got bad karma now and I need to get some good karma. Or you might call it poetic justice. Or if you're raised in a church, you might call it God. But there's this feeling of I've done something wrong and I've offended. There's some principle of goodness in the universe which is outside of me. And I, I feel that I'm accountable and there's a problem. And what do most people start doing at that point? They feel scared they're going to get in trouble. So they start trying to do some good stuff to make up for the bad stuff. Mm -hmm. You go home and hug your mama mm -hmm. or call your mama if you live far away. Say something nice to her, right? You go volunteer for a charity. Give a little money to... A poor person you encounter on your daily commute. You try and do some good stuff to outweigh the bad stuff. Why? Because you're afraid of negative consequences. Now, that kind of servile fear, in one sense, it has a useful function. If, if people are totally insensitive to that inner voice, that's called being a sociopath. We don't want that, do we? And it, so servile fear, this fear of I'm going to be punished for the wrong things I've done. It might restrain us from doing some bad stuff. There are less murders in the world because God gave people a conscience. And it might compel us to do some good stuff, to get our behavior in order. But servile fear never can motivate genuine love, can it? And a life that's lived motivated by fear of punishment is not going to be a happy or a healthy life. It's, it's the life of a slave. That's what it means. Slavish fear. Now, the good news of the gospel is Jesus came to set us free. That's right. So if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if we trusted Jesus Christ, his perfect love drives out that slavish fear because it has to do with punishment. That's what First John 4 says. You can go study that later this week. 
Jesus died on the cross for our sins. If you go to the cross of Jesus, what you find is the holy God, the source of all goodness, saying that he loves you enough to pay the price and to bear the consequence for your sin so you can be forgiven. And if you trust in Christ, now you're adopted into the family of God. You're forgiven. You're loved. You're secure. You don't have to be afraid of punishment. Isn't that glorious news? Now, then we could ask the question, once we've heard the gospel, does that mean we're done fearing God? Does the fear of the Lord go away? Well, the the scripture makes the answer to that question clear. The New Testament tells Christians, fear the Lord. Everybody say, fear God. Fear God. It says, God is a consuming fire. It says, approach God with reverence and awe. Be respectful. Don't be disrespectful in your approach to the Lord. So, So what does that look like for people that are adopted children of God? Well, it looks like what we're calling filial fear. Let's say it again. Everybody say, filial fear. Filial fear. This looks like... A soul that loves God and trusts God and respects God so much that it doesn't want to do anything that would dishonor the Lord or that would hinder its relationship with the Lord. We can start to get a faint analogy of this if we think about human relationships. If you're blessed enough to have a great relationship with your dad, you can think about this. Or if there's a mentor that you look up to and respect and love and trust. You know, I'm blessed. To have a great dad and a great relationship with my dad. I know there's a lot of people even in this room who haven't had that blessing, but I have. I trust my father. I respect my father. I love my father. I'm not afraid of being punished by my dad. Maybe when I was six, there was a little bit of servile fear restraining my behavior. But not anymore. But precisely because I trust him and love him and respect him, I don't want to do anything That would damage my relationship with him or that would dishonor him. That's filial fear. Or you can think about romantic love for a second. I love my wife. I love Candace with a deep and committed and passionate love. I treasure this relationship and I trust her completely. Precisely because of that, I'm serious about the relationship. And I fear and hate anything that would mess up that relationship. So I've got... Safeguards. We've got boundaries in our marriage protecting us from anything that would mess up the relationship. And we work hard to cultivate the relationship. You see, anytime you love something deeply enough, the the flip side of that is this fear, this aversion to anything that would mess up a relationship so precious. That's a faint analogy to what we're talking about with God, because here we're not just talking about a good human parent. We're talking about the perfect Heavenly Father, we're talking about the Holy One. We're talking about the creator of the universe. And what our text is saying here is through Jesus Christ. Now you can know that holy, holy God, the one you're going to stand before when you die. You can have a relationship with him now. You can trust him. You can know his love. So be sober minded. Be serious about that. Cultivate this filial fear of God. Now, the rest of our text, everything between verse one and verse seven is giving us three practical steps for how do we in our day to day life cultivate this kind of healthy fear of the Lord. And that's what we're going to look at for the rest of our sermon today. So the first piece of practical guidance that we have, we find at the end of verse one, and we can summarize it like this. Faith and obedience is better than sacrifice. Listen to this age's counsel at the end of verse one. To draw near to listen is better 
than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Now, what the sage is talking about here is true worship. The word that's in your text for the word listen is the Hebrew word Shema, which always means to hear and obey. So I want you to say that with me. Everybody say hear and obey. Hear and obey. Here's the idea. I was a high school teacher a few years ago. And if I were to tell my students to get out a piece of paper, how do I know they were listening to what I said? Yeah, if they get out a piece of paper. (laughs) Now, if I notice that one of my students doesn't get out a piece of paper, or or better yet, one of my students notices, he or she might say, did you hear what Mr. Shiloh said? They're going to associate hearing with obedience. I know they were listening by what they do. So what the sage is saying in his context is this. When you come to the temple of God, recognize that you're entering the presence of holiness and be ready to listen and obey whatever he says. Don't come just to perform your religious duty. God has no pleasure in religious duty that is void of faith and obedience. Now, we could translate that to our context and say this. If you come to church on Sunday, but you dishonor him by disrespecting your parents Monday through Saturday, then God isn't pleased with your worship on Sunday. If you tithe faithfully, but you don't really trust God to provide for you, then God isn't pleased with your tithe. If you're on the worship team or the sound team or you teach a Bible study in the community all week, but your motivation for serving is self-promotion or to build a resume for yourself. Instead of delighting in God, then God isn't pleased with your service. Now, this theme runs throughout scripture. I'm going to give you just a smattering of verses that, that bring about this point. Now, I'm going to encourage you to write them down, but don't try to look them up. I'm going to go too fast for that. But I would encourage you to study these this week. First Samuel 15:22, And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen in the fat of rams. Psalm 40, verse 6. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but ears you have dug for me. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Jeremiah 7, 22 and 23. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them. Obey my voice. And I will be your God and you will be my people. 
and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. Hosea 6, 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Amos 5, 22-24. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Jesus in Matthew 9 is hanging out with some people who are known to be sinners. And the religious elite who keep all the laws come to him. And they express their disapproval of what he's doing. And Jesus responds in Matthew 19. He says this. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, those who think they keep all this law. I came to call sinners. Now, religious activity by itself does not please God. What pleases God, church, is a heart that is filled with love for God and that trusts in God and that wants to please God. What pleases God is a heart that is broken over its sin and that throws itself on the mercy of God. What pleases God is a heart that listens to the word of God and that finds God to be the source of hope and the root of justice. And the fountain of love, what pleases God is a heart that obeys whatever God says. So to tie this to what John Mark was just talking about, what pleases God is a life that walks in the filial love of God. That's true worship. Now, this kind of worship is only possible when we know what Jesus has done for us. If you think you have to do a lot of religious activity for God to love you, you can stop thinking that. He already loves you. <laughs> Let me tell you this, yo. Even if you know Jesus, if you try and think that by, by going to a lot of Bible studies and coming to church every week, that God's going to love you more, God, God already loves you. That's already taken care of. He already loves you. And besides, you couldn't do enough religious activity to make yourself righteous. You can't earn God's favor. We receive God's favor through Christ as a gift. Jesus died to save you and me from our sins. Jesus died died to free us to walk in filial fear of love. So faith and obedience are better than sacrifice. So the first way that the text teaches us to live a life marked by fear fear of God is to recognize God doesn't care much about our hollow religious activity. He wants us to hear his word with faith and obedience. The second thing is this. God wants us to learn to be quiet before the transcendent one. Now, I just long for the help of the Holy Spirit because I've only got a couple minutes now to make a really important point. So help us, Holy Spirit. This is an important point, guys. God wants you 
to learn how to be quiet before the transcendent one. I use another big theological word. Everybody say transcendent. Transcendent. This word transcendent just means beyond. God is beyond anything you've thought about him. God is beyond anything you've imagined about him. He is better and greater and more glorious than you have yet thought. And if you trivialize God, if you minimize God in your life, you need to get rid of that tendency. God is transcendent. He's holy. And he wants us to learn to be quiet in his presence. Look at what verses two and three say. Be not rash with your mouth. I would have saved myself so much trouble in life if I just did that. (laughs) Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. What this is saying is what we started talking about last week. If you were here, any fool can talk and any fool can talk to God. But only the wise of heart learn to be quiet and listen to God. Be not rash with your mouth. Do not be hasty to utter a word before the Lord your God. Let your words be few. Learn to be quiet. Now, the text is not saying don't pray. Everybody should pray. It's good to pray. That's right. But the right kind of prayer is the kind of prayer that is the overflow of first listening to God. It's a response to God's word. Verse three is interesting. It's a little confusing, but it's making a comparison just as being super busy, stressing yourself out, working hard all day, trying to build a career is likely to cause you at night to have your sleep interrupted by stressed out dreams in the same way being a fool. Is likely to make you talk a lot. Isn't that a sobering, humbling thought right there? If you have folly in your heart, words, words, words are going to come out. Even when you're with God, you're going to talk, 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 try and talk your way out of your insecurity. But the text says God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. What does that mean? It does not mean God is distant from us. He's close to us. Actually, St. Augustine said rightly, he's closer to us. Than we are to ourselves. God is with you right now. He's in this room. He's watching you. He's close to you. His love is always near you. But in scripture, heaven is is the realm of God's transcendent glory. It's the place of his throne. If you want to know what heaven is like, you could picture this scene, which is painted in the book of Revelation or in Isaiah chapter six. You picture a throne And the throne is surrounded by the shining, bright, multicolored smoke of God's glory. And outside around that glory, there's angels covering their faces because though they are sinless and holy themselves, they can't look directly into the presence of God. And all the time, day and night, forever and ever, they are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The saints who have died in Christ and have already gone into the presence of God are surrounding them, worshiping the Lord. That's the scene that the Bible paints for us. That's the Holy One. So when it says God is in heaven, you are on earth. It's trying to say, listen, you are different than God. There's a lot of ways you're different than God. Shall, Shall we name a few? We are mortal. I'm going to die. My body is going to break down. I don't know what's going to kill me. I don't know when, but I'm going to die. But God is the immortal source of all life. He is eternal life itself. God is perfectly good. 
There's no mixture of evil in him. But I'm a mix and you're a mix. We've got some good in us and all the good in us is derivative. It comes from God. But we've also got all sorts of evil and sin. God is in heaven and you are on earth. God is infinitely powerful. But our power is very limited. Not a week goes by that I don't learn more how limited my power is. There's a whole lot of stuff I would like to do and cannot do. God knows everything. Past, present, and future. I barely know anything about the present. I definitely don't know the future. God can give us the lasting peace and joy and meaning purpose that we long for. Ecclesiastes has been teaching us we cannot achieve those things for ourselves. God is in heaven. You are on earth. Are you getting the picture? We are really, really needy. God is infinitely self-sufficient and he has everything that we need. So the text is saying, just learn to be still, learn to be quiet and listen to God. Now, this theme runs throughout the whole Bible. I don't have time to read all the stuff that was in my notes. But in the Psalms, we see over and over the importance of quieting our hearts before God. I'll just read you one example. David was a man of action. David accomplished much and did much good in the world. But Psalm 131 tells us the spiritual secret that kept David motivated and working in his life when it says this. Listen to this prayer of David. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. David's life of action, his life of faith and obedience flowed out of the spiritual practice of quietness in the presence of God. Or we could look at Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith and the ministry of Jesus. He's a man of action. He's healing. He's teaching. He's casting out demons. He's always working. But listen to the secret behind that. I'm going to read you two verses from the Gospel of Luke, chapter five. Starting verse 15, it says, but now even more, the report about Jesus went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So there's so many opportunities to do good. So many people to help. But listen to the next verse. Luke 5, 16 says, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. He got alone to be still and quiet with his father. To abide in the love of his father. To hear the word of his father and then go forward and accomplish the mission that God the father had given to do. Or when Jesus teaches us to pray, he teaches us, friends, we don't need to keep saying lots of noisy words to get God to hear us. That's what some pagans think. But he says, you don't have to think like that. God doesn't need information from you. <laughs> Listen to what he says. Matthew six, seven through eight. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. In my life, friends, I find myself repeatedly now and increasingly praying a prayer that was prayed by Amy Carmichael. Anybody know who Amy Carmichael is? Okay, like three. I got to go look it up. Google Amy Carmichael later. She was a great pioneer evangelist. Devoted her life to caring for the poor, started an orphanage, educated vulnerable children, had a great life. But in the midst of all this activity, the prayer she would constantly pray was this. My father, quiet me till in thy holy presence hushed. I think thy thoughts with thee. My father, quiet me 
Till in thy holy presence hushed, I think thy thoughts with me. I just want to dream with you for a second. I know you're already a, a people that love God's word. You love to hear God. You love to be alone with God. But I'm just imagining what could be. Saints, what if we were a church that was characterized by this increasingly over time? We were a people whose souls were quiet. They were filled with the peace of God, not in a way that made us passive, but in a way that gave us this persevering love and creative energy. We could keep fighting against evil and fighting to do good, to share the gospel, to make disciples, to do justice, to love mercy, because that was flowing not from our anxiety, but from deep, deep wells of peace. Our souls are quiet because the secret of our life that nobody saw besides us and God was that we love to be much alone with God, quiet with him in his presence, hearing his word. If we were that kind of a community that that characterized all of our lives, my goodness, that would be a holy church. And, and that kind of a community would be a sign to the world in the midst of all the chaos and turmoil and distraction. Jesus, King of Peace, is in their midst. That's what I want to be. So we've talked about how filial fear reminds us that faith and obedience is better than sacrifice. Reminds us that what's deeply important in our lives is to cultivate a soul that is quiet before a transcendent God. What the fear of the Lord also teaches us is that, church, you don't have to play games with God. We don't have to play any games with God. Let me show you what I mean. Look with me at verses 4 through 6. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now, the sage is talking about making vows to God. Throughout the Bible, there are good examples of people who make vows and keep them. And there are bad examples of people who make vows and don't keep them. And we call that bargaining with God. We sometimes see this kind of bargaining play out today. People get in trouble and they might say, God, if you get me out of this mess, I'll go to church every Sunday. Or if you just give me enough to, to pay these bills, I'll never do any bad stuff again. And what the sage is saying is, don't play with God like that. Don't bargain with God. Now, there are, are two realities we need to consider when we think about striking a bargain with God. The first is this. We can't bargain with God. We can't bargain with God. In order to bargain, if I want to bargain with you, I got to have something that you want and you got to have something that I want. And we got to work that out. But we just talked about how, about the fact that, that God is in heaven and we are on earth, which means God the transcendent, everlasting one is the source of all existence and the fount of all goodness. Therefore, he wants for nothing. He has no need. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Every beast of the forest is his. The cattle on a thousand hills is his. 
We have nothing to offer God. We can't bargain with God. And if we think we can bargain with God, then what we're doing is we're thinking that we have something that God needs. Does God need your righteousness? Does God need your wisdom? Does God need your strength? Does God need your pennies to the dollar? He doesn't need mine. And he does not need yours. He doesn't need anything from us. So we can't bargain with God. But the second reality is just as true, but it's better. It's better. See, knowing that you can't bargain with God might make us feel hopeless. But God wants to give us hope. Here's the second reality. We don't need a bargain with God. We don't need a bargain with God. If you are in Christ, if you have trusted that Jesus is the son of God who died on the cross for your sins to pay the debt that you could never pay. If you believe he was raised from the dead on the third day, then God has already promised to give you everything that you need. You don't need a bargain with God. Earlier, we heard Jesus say that that we don't need to heap up empty phrases in our prayers because God is a good father who knows what we need before we even ask him. And later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say this. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your father, who is in heaven, give good gifts, good things to those who ask him? See, fam, God is a good father who is in heaven. He's the transcendent one, the source of all existence, and he wants to give you good things. So come into his presence with filial fear, the fear that trembles at his holiness, but comes boldly by his grace. Don't make bargains with God. Don't try to get God in your debt. Just ask him for what you really need. And if you love him, don't make up some vow to prove your love for him or to try to get to get in his good graces. In Christ, you're already in his good grace. Just do what he already told you to do. Now, I know that some of you have come and may be saying, maybe even watching, that may say, yeah, but you didn't see the last few months of my life. You don't, I don't know how God would want to love me based on what I've done. In other words, you're wearing shame. And I would like to say to you, if that's you today, you know one of the best gifts that God likes to give? Forgiveness. And we just ask him. And he forgives us. Which means that in Christ, shame doesn't look good on you. It doesn't fit anymore. Not if you're wearing the righteousness of Christ. You can put off that shame. Because you're clothed with Jesus. We can't bargain with God. But we don't need to. And that is really, really good news. Amen. Well, we're done preaching up here. We've been taking a while now to try and unpack these words from the Lord, but I just want to finish by making it real plain, real simple to everybody that's here today. The Holy Spirit is talking to you and to me through this text, and he's saying, come into the presence of God. That's right. Come into the presence of God. Just don't play games as you come. Don't mess around. Don't be disrespectful. 
Don't feel like you've got to perform or accomplish or do something to get God to accept you. Just hear the word of the gospel and with simple, humble faith, believe and then obey whatever he tells you to do. That life of simple faith, simple love, simple obedience is the life that pleases the Lord. With that in mind, let's come now to the Lord's table. Let me say a prayer for you. Father, I thank you for this community of saints. Thank you for this group of believers here in this room. I pray for anyone here who does not today, right now, have a relationship with you that even now your Holy Spirit would be awakening deep faith in Christ. That we would all trust the gospel. And I pray for everybody in this room that you would be doing a work to help move us from immaturity to maturity or from maturity to more maturity, that we would grow to be a people who have quiet souls before you, who fear you, who trust you, who love you, and that that is the center of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.